I'll Not Be Home for Christmas, written by Jean Fairburn and narrated by Sue Rodwell-Smith. It's Christmas Day in Germany. It's snowing hard. It has all day. Pain is racking my wounded chest, keeping my body from its rest. So lay me down gently. Give these cigarettes to the sentry. He'll wash away the battled blood from my body caked in mud. And ask him please for pen and paper. One day I'll return the favour. For I must try to write to my wife. She who is my love, my life. Who takes my hand at dead of night and dreams with me till morning light. Can you hear those trumpets and a band that summon me to a promised land? Tell my wife, though I love her so, home for Christmas. Oh dear, no. I'm slipping away so fast, but feel no pain. That's in the past. The sun is sinking slowly down like a blood stain on the ground. Oh, this pen I can no longer hold. Padre, why am I so cold? You speak to me so quietly of the love God gives to me. I cannot believe your hollow creed, cannot intone your empty prayer, thinking it always just hot air. Neither can I hold that small gold cross, nor drink your wine, though I do feel lost, and tell my wife, though I love her so, home for Christmas, oh dear no, I'm afraid that I must go. A Snowy Christmas Eve was written and is narrated by Helen O'Mahony. Do enjoy. A memory, a moment captured and forever perfect. Like a child's snow globe, shaken and suspended. A vision of a snowy winter's night and crunching through the virgin white of freshly fallen flakes, the sparkle in the light. The peal of midnight bells rings out to celebrate the Saviour's birth 2,000 years ago the reason for our eager journey in the snow. Christmas brings the magic and the mystery, the wonder and the joy. Our childish faces looking skyward to see the silver moon aglow. A lantern in the dark, it shows which way to go. We hold our tongues out to taste the frosty tingle, palms open to catch the frozen crystals which melt and disappear. Flurries of silver snowflakes swirling through the park, a shower of feathers from a goose down sky. The ghostly trees with arms outstretched to brush our face or hair. The snap and crack as underfoot our boots break branches bare. Twigs all blanketed under snow and hard to see. Like tiny skeletons of long dead things asleep beneath the drifts. The chiming bells help clear our path through unmarked woodland ways. And in the crispness of the air their voices call to us. This way your journey lies. Soon inside the church we'll be, with candles all aglow, and gather round the wooden crib to hail the infant birth. Carols all in harmony, and people warm inside. But when we're done, the magic waits for us, we know. Out here in woods, so still, and glades all cloaked in snow.
The poem you're about to hear was written and is recited by one of our most prolific writers, Isabel Cook. Do enjoy. A Christmas Thought Christmas this year will not be full of cheer and we may not be with family or friends we hold dear. But Christmas is not all about the presents and the lights. We must do all that we can and remember the greatest gift, the Son of Man. He was born into a stable, into caring hands. He was sent as a present to all of us with love by our Father in heaven up above. And to each and every one of us, that is more than enough to make the Christmas spirit sing within us. Filigree Angels, A Miracle Awakens was written and is narrated by Denise Dowdle-Stent. It is a beautifully calming poem and will smooth all your stresses away. Do enjoy. From within, it stirs, barely moving, barely awake, its breath misting, steaming, warming. Slowly it stretches, reaching out its tentative touch, as fragile as floss-spun glass, crystalline, beautiful and alive. Sentience claims it now, a flood with rainbow strands, splashes of love, chromatic, chaotic, clarity unconfined, a symphony of angelic chorus, innocent and perfect in its purity, its fractaline beauty unrivaled in grace, heart thrumming, no longer pulsing alone, it is twinned, paired, Alone nevermore, touch as soft as a cloud's caress, gentle, calming, soothing, safe. It is all of this and so much more. And suddenly it was time for Christmas. Written and narrated by Colette Parker and edited by Sue Rodwell-Smith. Claire had been waiting for Christmas to arrive all year. In fact, since the very day she and her brothers had helped their mum and dad pack away the decorations up in the loft after last year's festivities. The long hot summer had gone, then Halloween and fireworks night, which was just some sparklers, jacket potatoes and sausages in front of a bonfire in the garden, as it was all they could afford this year. Claire, Corrie and Colin had sat outside the co-op shop in their corner near their home in Huntingdon, shouting, Penny for the guy! to raise a few pennies to buy the sparklers 
Actually, it was a she-guy, a stuffed Margaret Thatcher. Now the big day was approaching again and they'd got the decorations back down. Dad had gone into town to the market to buy a tree and Mum was busy in the kitchen rolling pastry for mince pies and sausage rolls to be packed in a tin, ready to take on their long train journey to London to be with Nan and the rest of the family on Christmas Day. Claire wanted to help as she loved baking. I'm really sorry, sweetheart, said Mum, but I need to get on today. How about you help Nan and I on Christmas Day? Satisfied with this, Claire asked if she could go into town with her friend Stacy on the bus as they wanted to buy presents. Mum agreed and off the friends went, Dan Tan, spending all their saved pocket money very quickly at Cheat Jack's, the stall outside the town hall, on some diaries, perfume, toiletry and posh pens. Claire and her brothers had already bought their parents a present, a clock to go on the wall with a pendulum. Claire got back in time to help Mum put up the decks while listening to their favourite Christmas tunes on the record player. The array of brightly coloured twinkling decorations included the metal coat hangers, twisted together and adorned in tinsel complete with baubles suspended on each corner to be hung from the ceiling. Mum got the idea for the coat hangers from Blue Peter and the recycled egg cartons transformed into baubles, some of which would take pride of place on the tree alongside the tiny plastic elves from Woolworths. The elves, on swings, came out every year without fail. There was also Mum's famous snow scene on top of the piano to finish before tea. A few sleeps later and Claire, Corrie and Colin were with their parents on the train to King's Cross. As usual, Dad left it to the very last minute to climb on board and almost missed the train as he dashed into the little cafe and shop on the platform to buy a newspaper. Claire pulled the window down, clutching the parcel containing the precious clock close to her, along with the tin containing the mince pies, and shouted to him as he strolled alongside the train, Come on, Dad! The train is about to leave! They arrived at Nan's house a little weary after their journey, but excited about seeing all their cousins and the festivities which lay ahead. The Christmas dinner on the long table with three different meats, specially brought that morning by their uncle from Smithfield's Market. And the party in the evening, which this year was to be a tramp's ball. Claire was going to dress up as Aladdin, in Max, before he found the genie in the lamp. She put the parcel with the clock under the large Christmas tree in the bay window and gave Nan the tins with the mince pies, saying, Mum said I can help with the Christmas dinner. Nan nodded back in the affirmative and smiled. She lived in the top two floors of a very large old Victorian house, which had been divided into two flats. 
One thing Claire and her brothers did not look forward to was bedtime in Nan's flat. The bedrooms were in the attics of the house and the siblings were scared by the shadows created by the lamp and the ancient furniture, which to them looked like the faces of some ghoulish characters. However, this was Christmas Eve and they were anxious for the morning to dawn so they could see what Sander had left in their pillowcases at the end of their beds. The siblings were not disappointed and they were thrilled to see their parents' delight when they opened their parcel containing the clock. Claire put it proudly on top of her nan's piano for all to see. True to their word, Mum and Nan said Claire could help with the last-minute preparations for the dinner and they instructed her to take the large jug of gravy carefully out of the oven where it had been to keep warm. She placed it on the table next to her uncle, then sat down with the rest of the family, now all gathered and ready for the feast. Suddenly, her uncle, who had just poured the gravy onto his turkey and placed a succulent morsel into his mouth, spat it out again, saying, This gravy isn't gravy! It's got sugar in it! Mum and Nan looked straight at Claire as they realised her mistake. What she thought was turkey gravy was actually sherry sauce for the mince pies which had also been warming in the oven. Claire stood up with a start but as she did so knocked the piano behind her. The clock she had placed so carefully came crashing down to the floor and its glass face shattered everywhere. She burst into tears and ran upstairs. A few minutes later, the door opened and there was mum and dad to comfort her, saying luckily only uncle had poured the gravy before the mistake was realised. Don't worry about the clock, Dad said reassuringly. I can cut a bit of glass out at work and it still tells the time. Talking of time, it's time you wiped those tears and got back downstairs. Our Christmas dinner is getting cold and we have a party to prepare for. Many years later, Claire thought back to that special Christmas day. I was a lad in that night, but I didn't need a genie and a lamp to grant me wishes. Everything I wanted or needed at that moment was right there. My mum and dad, my brothers, Nan and all the family. Charlie's Christmas, written by Isabel Cook and narrated by Sue Rodwell-Smith. 
Charlie sat on the park bench. He was alone and cold. The Christmas season had not affected him. He was in his own bubble and his world was bleak. Charlie, until two weeks ago, had a home, but now he was homeless and had nowhere to go. He was 16 and very afraid. A group of children were excitedly bustling by him. One of them had a crook. They were obviously going to be in a Christmas play and they were reciting their lines as they were walking along. A young girl about Charlie's age stopped and spoke to him. Charlie hardly responded. He didn't feel joyful at all. Come and watch the play, she asked him. There'll be mulled wine and mince pies. Charlie heard the part about mince pies and thought he would go. He hadn't eaten for two days. He picked up his few belongings and followed the girl who was called Claire. She had a spare scarf and placed it around Charlie's neck. A Christmas present, she told him. Charlie was grateful. His coat was inadequate for the weather. Claire went into a shop just before it closed and came out again with a drink of hot chocolate and a sandwich. Charlie thought that they were for her, but she unexpectedly gave them to him. Do I look so needy? he thought. Charlie was hungry and he had to stop himself from wolfing the sandwich down. Claire watched him for a while until it was time for her to put her costume on. She disappeared into a side alley and was unrecognisable when she returned. Claire was Mary and Charlie had not seen her face properly. It had been muffled in a hat and scarf. She was beautiful. And he realised he couldn't ask her out. He had no money and he knew he needed a bath. The play began and for an hour or so, Charlie was content to watch and listen. The play was a modern take on the nativity and it was rather good. Charles's stomach was rumbling and a few heads turned in his direction. He was waiting for the mince pies. The play ended and Charlie clapped. Claire was soon again at his side and she had a plate of mince pies and sandwiches. They sat on one of the hay bales erected for the performance and ate the food. Claire then went and fetched him a drink. The cola was rather flat, but that didn't bother Charlie. The evening was drawing towards night. Charlie suddenly had a wave of fear that engulfed him. Claire left him to get changed and he was unsure what he should do. He had nowhere to go. The set was deserted and he sat alone shivering. A biting wind had picked up and Charlie was glad of the scarf. Suddenly, Claire was there 
She put her arm in his. We have a spare bed if you're interested, she told him. Charlie didn't know how to respond, but his tears answered her invitation. The house was dark and Charlie apprehensively entered the hallway. Claire went and spoke to a man who came and patted Charlie on the back. Well, my lad, we can't have you with nowhere to go, now can we? I'm Leonard and my wife is called Simone. Charlie hardly audibly answered and he was whisked into a brightly decorated front room. There was a large Christmas tree by the window. Leonard switched on the lights and the room was transformed. The curtains remained open so passers-by could see the tree. Simone served dinner and Charlie's eyes lit up. There was a roast chicken and all manner of accompaniments. Leonard told him to tuck in and Charlie didn't need to be told twice. Later, Leonard took Charlie to one side and spoke to him. Charlie opened up and explained that he had been thrown out of his home. His mother's new boyfriend didn't want him hanging around. Charlie had done well at school and was due to start the sixth form in September. He had attended, but only for a short while, and he didn't know what he should do. Leonard told him not to worry. He would go with Charles to his school and together they would sort things out. That night, as Charlie lay in bed, he could not believe the kindness shown to him. Simone had told him that if he wanted, he could stay with them and go to school. No one had ever shown any kindness to Charlie before and he was so overwhelmed. His pillow was soon damp, but he had a smile on his face. It was two days until Christmas and Charlie wondered what to give the family for a present. He was good with his hands and he enjoyed woodwork. He asked Leonard if he could have some wood and could borrow some tools. Luckily Leonard had a workshop out in the shed and he showed Charlie where things were. Later that day, Charlie shut himself away in the shed and worked on until gone midnight. He crept back into the house to find a plate of cold meat and cheese and pickles waiting for him. Early the next morning, he didn't eat breakfast but headed for the shed. Soon, he had two items ready to be wrapped. He asked Simone if she had any spare wrapping paper and she gave him a whole roll. Christmas morning came and there were three extra presents under the tree. Charlie sat as he watched Claire open her presents and suddenly there was a gift for him. He didn't know what to say but mumbled a thank you. Well, aren't you going to open it? said Claire. Charlie began opening the large box. A new pair of trousers plus everything he would need to start school. Thank you, he ejected very loudly. Thank you so much. Simone took the smaller parcel that Charlie had wrapped and Leonard the larger one. They opened them together. There was silence. 
Charlie leaned forward. Do you like them? He asked, not sure of their response. Simone looked at the fruit bowl and gave Charlie a hug. Leonard looked at the wine rack and told Charlie that the presents were the best things they had ever received. Charlie was beaming. He had a grin as big as a Cheshire cat and finally felt that here was somewhere where he could belong. Merry Christmas, he piped up and they all responded. A Christmas Present, written by Janet Nichols, narrated by Roger Ems, and edited by Sue Rodwell-Smith. Joe was sitting inside the church porch when Marie arrived that Christmas day and his face lit up with adoration when she arrived. She was carrying their baby, Jess, who was tightly wrapped in two big cardigans and sleeping contentedly in the bottom of an old but sturdy shopping bag. Their cold faces kissed warming kisses, and she stroked Joe's shoulder as she asked, oh, what time did you finish last night? He gave a grimacing smile as he said, about two this morning. It meant an extra 30 quid though, working after midnight. The place was a mess after the Christmas Eve rush before closing. You wouldn't believe the state the confectionery aisle was in. But it all helps though, doesn't it? Means we can pay more debts. It all helps, love, she said. And Joe took the heavy, jess-filled shopping bag from her as they walked into a church made warm by a midnight mass, followed by an early Eucharist. They could hear an electronic, Oh, come all ye faithful, playing from beyond the altar screen, in front of which was a table laid out with tinned foodstuffs, and not only packets of the usual essential provision, but also some Christmas treats such as stolen cake and mince pies. Happy Christmas, a food bank volunteer smiled. And I hope you'll be going with the others to the river. To the river? Marie asked. Uh, we, we were just thinking of staying in, wherever we could be, somewhere and warm, maybe staying here in the church. The volunteer smiled some more, but this time it was a knowing smile. Oh no, I think you'll be going to the river with the others. You wouldn't want to deprive the little one of a treat, would you? But little Jess was still dozing after a sleep-deprived night in the noisy mother and baby hostel, and Marie wanted to devote precious time to Joe, 
to compensate him for his uncomfortable night on his workmate Frank's couch. Surely the church could be kept open all Christmas Day to accommodate people who'd fallen on hard times. But no, the volunteer was insistent. They're just about to set off and you're going with them. Joe and Marie were just too tired to argue. It was a strange bunch of sad, sleep-deprived, unemployed or low-paid food bank dependents who walked through the streets of St Ives that evening. People whose faith had been severely tested but who had a sense of resignation that there might be a purpose to their strange cold journey. The water in the river could not be seen because a thick cloud of river-wide frosty fog hovered above it, glittering in the winter twilight. Where was the water? Where were they going? Wait here, a volunteer said. It'll be worth the wait. And so they waited the familiar weight of people who'd been forced to depend on the whims of others, waiting to see what would happen to make matters worse or, well, just possibly make them better. The cold was already pinching into Marie's bones and she was checking whether baby Jess had somehow managed to stay warm enough when she heard an unusual sound approaching from within the frost cloud. Others heard it too and the whole group went quiet to try and work out what the familiar but unfamiliar sound was. No one seemed to know but then little by little Bright colours of red and green emerged from the ice fog and, of course, they knew what it was. It was a boat, an old-fashioned barge painted in traditional canal boat colours and decked out with bunting and Christmas lights from end to end. Its brightness was emphasised against the dull whites and greys of the frosty day. The group felt hushed, apart from a few worried murmurs of what's going on and what's happening. Welcome aboard, came a loud, if not bellowing, male voice from the deck, and Marie found herself experiencing surprise that it was not Father Christmas himself. He did indeed have long grey hair, but there was stubble where Santa's beard should have been, and a white sailor's cap was on his head instead of a hood. Come aboard, everybody. All the welcome. Welcome to your Christmas present, he bellowed some more, and the little group carefully and suspiciously stepped on deck and into the large cabin below. The cabin had a golden redness about it, warmed by the glow of hanging lanterns and the flicker of a log stove in the corner. Joe still held Jessie's shopping bag crib tightly and tried to keep his other arm protectively around Marie's shoulders. All he'd ever wanted to do was to care for and protect them, but now their lives had become nothing but uncertainties and he felt he could trust no one. What sort of a man was he if he could not support his wife and child? It seemed that even being directed here by a church meant nothing in a time when any god there might be had forsaken the poor so very, very badly. Yet the warmth of the cabin enveloped the desolate little group in a slow lullaby of comfort, even the air around them having a magical quality 
that Marie seemed to touch as she held her finger in a gleam of lamplight. A kettle was already heating on the old-fashioned stove with the smell of hot chocolate drinks on their way. Jess started to stir in the shopping bag. Oh, oh, the little one's waking, said a plump woman who was obviously the skipper's mate in some way or other, and all eyes fell on the cardigan-wrapped baby in the bag. Oh, look, Joe, look, Marie whispered. It's Jessie's first proper smile. See, it's not wind, it's a proper smile. And the group huddled around in fascination as though they'd never seen a baby's smile, let alone its first smile. The boat set off from the quayside in St Ives and sailed along the River Grey Twos, stopping at Hemingford Grey, Houghton and Huntingdon, where passengers were surprised again and again. At each stop, local people came to the bank to deliver gifts of food and drink and, as the ice mist lifted, passengers were able to wave goodbye to their well-wishers. Along the way, each of the passengers shared stories of how they'd fallen on hard times. The most common experience being of their workplaces having been newly structured to employ fewer people. Joe was not the only one with a zero hours contract to work somewhere without the security of regular pay. But in Joe's case, the restructuring emphasised a production line on which a carpenter with his skills was no longer needed. Machines could do the job more economically. It seemed that suddenly he and Marie could not pay their rent. They were homeless and Marie had been moved to a mother and baby home too far away from their free family childcare for her to return to office work. John, the bellowing man, and Jenny, the bellowing man's mate, listened intently to all the stories while still trying to maintain the magical Christmas spirit that oozed out of that warm cabin on the great ooze. More hot mince pies emerged, yule logs were sliced, carols were sung to the sound of John's guitar, and the smell of mulled wine permeated the air. Little Jess carried on gurgling and smiling, with no baby cries to spoil the precious Christmas celebrations. To Joe, it all seemed too perfect to be real, and he could not escape even briefly from the gloom of what his life had become. The journey would soon be over, and what then? Yes, it was over, and they were moored, once again at St Ives Riverside, for the cold walk back to whatever each of them called home. But first, Jenny disappeared into a back cabin and reappeared, weighed down with a pile of wool. She almost staggered as she hoisted the pile onto the galley table and groaned a deep breath of relief when she'd done so. Here you are, one each, she smiled. And she handed out brilliantly coloured hand-knitted blanket to each passenger, including a full-size blanket to little Jess. Each blanket bore a Christmas gift tag. 
The passengers had the uncomfortable looks of people who had nothing to give in return and said thanks and sorry, almost in unison. Yet they all knew that this Christmas had been nearer to a miracle than any of them could ever have hoped for. All of them wrapped their colourful blankets around their shoulders for the walk through town and it was a wool-filled group hug as they said their farewells to each other that day. Um, what's the tag say on your blanket, Joe? Marie asked as she walked beside him. Then, oh, there's another one hanging from Jessie's blanket, she said as she looked at the shopping bag Joe was carrying. Joe stopped and read the small Christmas card, written in bold capital letters. Oh, oh my God, he said. Good God, I don't believe it. What? She almost screamed with impatience. Well, read that. Us boaters have always a need for a good carpenter for bespoke cabin furniture, and it is well-paid regular work. If you are willing, please phone 01480 Happy Christmas, John. Joe and Marie had to stop to sit on a bench at the bus station for a long time, hugging each other and little Jess with glee. Tears of joy fell like icicles on their cheeks. But, but what does yours say? Joe asked. And Marie looked. Oh, God. Oh, there is a God, Marie gasped. Oh, read that, she said. I am a qualified nursery nurse and would be happy to look after little Jess while you go to work. At least we know the child is happy on a boat. If you would like me to, then please phone 0872266677. Happy Christmas, Jenny. Joe was astonished, but immediately curious about the, what the tag said on Jessie's blanket. And he read it aloud straight away. It said, A full-sized blanket for someone who is going to grow up to be a big person who will change the world for the better. Some of the best people who've ever lived come from humble beginnings. Your past is over, but today is your present. Love from John and Jenny King.